Good morning. Let's pray. Father, we have come to learn from you, and we thank you that your word tells us that we need to be a God-taught people, and that through the power of your spirit, because of the sacrifice of your son, we can be. Thank you that you are our instructor. I pray now, Father, that you would guard my mouth to speak what is true. Lord, as we think about and talk about your holiness and then the requirement of holiness upon us, I pray that you would cause it to arrive at home in our hearts. In fact, friends, let me just pause and give you a moment to pray. Just ask God to, to make your heart tender before him. You'd receive what he wants you to receive today. So, Father, we come with open hands. We want to be made into the image of your Son, Father. We pray it in his name. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 today, continuing in our series in 2 Corinthians. I want to take it in pieces with you today. I want to read verses, verse 1 in chapter 7 first. And if you're flipping there, you, I'm going to begin to read, but you'll catch up uh, as you get there. The words will also be on the screen. As we always say, if you don't have a Bible of your own, we'd love to give you one. We've got Bibles out at the Welcome Center. So if you've never just gotten a Bible of your own, it would be our privilege to give you one as a gift to you because we just want you to have God's Word in your hand. So chapter 7, verse 1, the end of our section says this. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body, and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This whole section ends with that thought, and it's really the driving idea, the proposition, the thesis, if you will, of this section of text, where Paul is saying to the Corinthians, I want you to learn what it is to walk in holiness. Now, friends, you need to understand a couple of things. Whenever holiness is talked about in the Scriptures, uh, there's two ways which, in particular, the New Testament talks about holiness. It talks about holiness as both a position and a process. All right, so say position with me. Position, and then say process. Process. It talks about it in those two ways, and we need to understand which way is being talked about when holiness is referenced, okay? So here it's primarily a process situation. I'll tell you what I mean by that, all right? When we come to God in Jesus Christ... We are told that we are given the righteousness of Christ. It's given to us, and therefore God views us as our position before him, our standing before him is as holy people. He looks at us as, as without blemish, purified. In fact, we saw that in chapter 5, verse 21, just a couple weeks ago. I don't know if you remember that. We were walking through 2 Corinthians. At the end of chapter 5, we're told that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's one of the most astounding verses in all of Scripture, right? That God would say, let me take you, sinner, and make you perfectly righteous. Let me give you Christ's righteousness, and he will take your sin. Now, what that verse is talking about is our position before God, our position of holiness before God. But then often the Scripture talks about holiness as a process also, something that must be worked towards, something that we must effort towards. We must participate with God in becoming holy people. And so Peter says uh, in his writings, 
as God is holy, because I am holy, therefore you shall be holy, right? And here, when uh, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, he's saying, I want you to bring holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Now, what he has in mind there is not that someday you and I will figure out how to complete or perfect our holiness in this life, but rather that we are efforting towards moving, growing in holiness. So, Position and process. Primarily, this text is talking about the process of growing in holiness. Perhaps the simple way to think of it is becoming more like Christ, right? We talk about that all the time. Probably no surprise that you showed up at church today and someone is going to talk to you about how do you become more like Jesus? How do you take on the character, the nature of God as it's displayed in Jesus Christ? Now, that's probably what you're thinking of, but I, I, I really want you to grapple with this idea of holiness because when we think about it, we are attempting to think about something that is really um, beyond us and above us. Now, I want you to hear A.W. Tozier's words. In his classic work, The Knowledge of the Holy, which I'd highly recommend to you, there's a chapter on the holiness of God. And I want you to hear what he says, because what it does is it, it sort of raises our eyes a little bit when it comes to this. And it's a little bit long, so just kind of stick with me. But he says this. It says, The sudden realization of his personal depravity came like a stroke from heaven upon the trembling heart of Isaiah at the moment when he had his revolutionary vision of the holiness of God. He's talking about the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 6. Isaiah sees God in his temple. His pain-filled cry, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, that quote expresses the feeling of every person who has discovered himself under his disguises and has been confronted with an inward sight of the holy whiteness that is God. Such an experience cannot be but emotionally violent. I love that. Experience of the holiness of God is emotionally volatile for us. Then he says, until we have seen ourselves as God sees us, we are not likely to be much disturbed over conditions around us as long as they do not get so far out of hand as to threaten our comfortable way of life. We have learned to live with unholiness and have come to look upon it as the natural and expected thing. We are not disappointed that we do not find all truth in our teachers or faithfulness in our politicians or complete honesty in our merchants or full trustworthiness in our friends. That we may continue to exist, we make such laws as are necessary to protect us from our fellow men and let it go at that. Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Now get this. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the desert of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of the divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. We know nothing like divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unattainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may fear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he cannot even imagine. Now, friends, I read that to you because I want you to understand that we have come here today 
to talk about holiness that is required of us by God. And that holiness which is required of us by God to engage with him, to be with him, is something that we cannot even stretch our minds to begin to comprehend. His holiness is beyond us. When we say that God is holy, we are talking about his moral purity, his intense white-hot goodness. There is no imperfection in him. We cannot even comprehend an existence like that. It escapes our ability to understand. And yet, we must be holy. Do you feel the tension of that? So here's what we're told in verse seven, or chapter 7, verse 1. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. First thing, friends, that I want you to understand is that it is the assumption of Scripture that you and I as followers of Jesus are advancing in holiness. And you may think, well, yeah, that makes sense. We talk about this idea of sanctification, becoming more like Jesus, advancing in holiness, advancing in purity. And yet I would argue that most of us live our lives as if we have really reached a cap when it comes to holiness. As if there's some, some degree of holiness that we will acquire, and that will be it, and then we will be done from there. I'll tell you two stories. The first is this. When I was growing up, I always wanted to be 6'4". I did not make it, all right? So I got boots with heels on them just to make me feel like I was close, right? Always wanted to be 6'4". I thought the scholarships would line up for basketball if I was 6'4". I made it to 6'1". Now, here's the thing is, I never had one of those growth spurts, you know, where you, like, get real awkward and you can't barely walk and chew gum at the same time. I just grew three inches at a time from seventh grade on. I was 5'1", then I was 5'4", then I was 5'7", then I was 5'10". And junior year, I hit 6'1", which coincidentally is my dad's exact height. And I thought, here we go, 6'4", senior year, this is going to be fantastic. And God said, you will go no further. (laughs) You are done. Which is just, not just for the basketball side, but just couldn't even give me a quarter of an inch just so I could be taller than dad. It's really what I was looking for. So I'll just have to wait till dad shrinks, which is coming. Always wanted to be that. But you know, I mean, if you wanted to be tall too, right, one of the things you recognize is at some point you just stop growing. At some point... Your height maxes out. You, most of you are there, right? You're like, I'm, I'm not growing anymore. If you're like 38 and you're still holding out for that growth spurt, I've got news for you. You have probably reached the pinnacle of your height, right? Now, here's the other story. Looked up the history of the 100-meter dash. Anybody know off the top of your head what the world record is in the 100-meter dash? I'll tell you. In 1891, on July 4th, oddly enough, an American set the first world record in the 100-meter dash. It was 10.8 seconds. That's pretty fast. His name was Luther Carey. Ran it in 10.8 seconds. In 1968, now here's what happens. You notice as you track the history of the 100 meters that it advances by hundredths of a second. Literally, one one hundredth of a second at a time, it tends to go down. Just little by little. And somebody runs it in 10.7 and somebody runs it in 10.6. In 1968, Jim Hines ran the first sub-10 100-meter dash. He ran a 9.95. That man was booking it down the track. And then in 1991, from 1968 to 1991, again, we've got just hundredth of a second, hundredth of a second, hundredth of a second. In 1991, Carl Lewis, you guys remember Carl Lewis? Shattered the world record by four one-hundredths of a second. The first one to advance the world record by that degree, by that margin in 1991. He runs it at that point 
in 9.86, down from 9.9 to 9.86. That was 1991. In 2009, you know who holds the world record now because you watch the Summer Olympics. Usain Bolt, the fastest man on the planet, ran the 100-meter dash in an astounding 9.58 seconds. How fast is that? And every time, don't you find yourself watching the Olympics and thinking to yourself, no one will ever go faster than that. That's it. We have capped out as it pertains to how fast a human being can cover 100 meters with their legs. And yet every time, somebody shatters a world record. It's unbelievable to me. Now here's my argument to you. We treat our holiness and the advancement of holiness in our lives as if it's our height, and we should be treating it like we're running the 100-meter dash. It's hard. It takes effort. Sometimes you make your way forward by hundredths of a second, and it takes years and years of training and hard work as you advance in holiness. But it is not your height. It is the assumption of the Bible that God's people are growing in holiness throughout the course of their lives. Not that they cap out, that they continue to advance. You with me? You guys follow that? That's the first assumption. Because quite honestly, friends, if you don't believe that, then everything else I say is kind of a moot point. If you think to yourself, I'll never grow more holy in sort of what I set my gaze on. I'll never grow more holy in my thought life. I'll never be able to conquer that sin and grow more morally pure in this area of my life. That's just the way it is. I'll never advance. That, that's just, it's, I've done my best. I've reached my cap. That's the way it's gonna be. Most of us behave as if that's the case. But friends, I want you to know that we are advancing the 100 meter dash world record here. That's what we're after. The growth of holiness in our lives. This process of becoming more like God and less like the world. So there's two things that we're gonna see in this text. The first is this, is that in order to become holy in this process of becoming holy, there are things that must be let go of and put away. The second thing we're gonna see is that there are things that must be brought in. So there's a putting away and there's a bringing in. The first part is the putting away part. Look at verses 14 through 16. Paul says this, he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now pause right there. Because if you've been with us in this series, you would recognize that that's a really odd left turn that he seems to have just taken. Because he's been talking about the ministry of reconciliation and that he's a trustworthy minister of the gospel and the Corinthians should really trust him and believe in him. He just finished, if you were with us last week, saying, look, I have godly character. This is what you should know about me. He's really defending his ministry to them. Talking about this idea of being ministers of reconciliation. And so it seems like this odd left turn that he would all of a sudden go, hey, by the way, don't be, uh, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Like, what? Where, where is that coming from? Why did you do this severe left turn, Paul? Well, it makes sense. There's a reason for it. And the reason is kind of unveiled in knowing the context of the Corinthians, but also in the verses that follow. So says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? That's another name for the devil. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? That verse 16 right there. What agreement has the temple of God with idols is sort of the key idea. What Paul is referring to when he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. All right, let's, let's talk about what he's not talking about. What Paul is not saying is, you, follower of Jesus, don't have any relationships with people who are outside of your faith. 
Separate yourself completely. Don't be around them. Don't live your life in such a way to influence them. Just remove yourself and see what happens when there's a vacuum of your goodness in the culture, right? That's not what he's getting at. And here's how we know that. Because look at a couple different places in the scriptures. <coughs> to these same people in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, to which you might say, aha, see, separate yourselves. But then he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. In other words, what Paul is saying is, it's my expectation, Corinthians, that you would regularly be around and engaging with people who do not share your faith. And I don't expect that they would behave in the same way that I expect a believer, a follower of Christ to behave. In fact, so much so that I would tell you to hold followers of Christ accountable for their actions. If they're behaving in these ways that are inappropriate, call them on it, take them to task on it, and they need to repent. That's what that verse is talking about. Then he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 27, if any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. Now the issue at stake there is whether or not a believer can eat certain types of meat that has been sacrificed to an idol. And what Paul is essentially saying is you don't need to sort of do all your background research to figure out if that meat has been sacrificed to an idol before you eat it. Just go and eat and enjoy the fellowship and be present there. Be an influence for the gospel in that place. In other words, the expectation is that he, they would be sitting down at table with people who do not share their faith. You guys follow that? So that's the expectation. So clearly he can't mean in 2 Corinthians, a couple years later, writing to the Corinthians, hey, don't have any relationships with people who are outside the faith. Because here's my concern as we talk about this, friends, as we talk about this holiness, many of us might be predisposed to hear this as See, I knew I was right to not have any intentional relationships with people who are not in Jesus. And I want you to understand that's not what this is saying. What it is saying, however, what it is saying, however, is that when we bind ourselves in close, intimate relationships so that the course and trajectory of our lives is, is, is helped to be set by people who do not share our faith, that that's a dangerous road to go down, that that is what he's calling us out of. Now listen to what else he says actually even here. Because even in that context, when you hear don't be unequally yoked, the first place that most believers when they read that apply that is, in, is where? Is marriage, right? You think, okay, uh, I'm a follower of Jesus, therefore I shouldn't marry someone who isn't a follower of Jesus. And yet listen to what Paul even said. That's true, by the way. That's a true statement. Listen to what Paul says to people who were new to the faith and then found themselves married to someone who they had come to faith, their spouse had not, and they're thinking to themselves, well, does that mean that I need to remove myself from this marriage? Is that to be faithful to Jesus as a brand new follower of his, do I need to remove myself from this marriage to this person who is not of faith? And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 12 through 13, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And Paul's reasoning, he goes on to say after that, because the spouse who does not believe, he says, is actually made holy by the spouse that does. Now, he's not saying they become a believer or they're made perfectly righteous in Christ. He's essentially saying they are influenced and shaped by their spouse who does know Jesus so that they might 
perhaps see and respond to that. So while he is giving a command not to intentionally link ourselves in deep, intimate ways so that the trajectory of our life is influenced by folks who are not believers, he's not saying don't be in relationship with people who need to know Jesus. You guys follow that? That's hugely important because one of our massive, one of our most important values is that we want to be sent with the gospel. And if we just remove ourselves into a holy huddle and just say, I'll just live in a bubble where the only people I'll ever interact with are followers of Jesus, we are not going to be able to accomplish the, the mission that God has given to us. But what will also prevent us from being able to accomplish the mission God has given to us is if we live in such intimate connection to the world that we begin to look so much like the world that we offer nothing different. And so there's the tension of the follower of Jesus that has to walk in holiness and live in the world. So when he talks about holiness, this word, when he says don't be unequally yoked, this word for unequally yoked is literally a term that is alluding to the idea of putting two different kinds of animals together to plow a field. It's like he's saying don't put an ox and a duck together to plow the field. That's not going to work. Right? The yoke's going to fall down. The ox is going to veer off. You're not going to plow straight lines. It's going to be a mess. You're not going to get where you need to go. What needs to be done cannot be done when you yoke animals of different types together. Don't do that. That's what he's getting at. So, friends, here's what I want you to say. I, let me say this, actually, just a little aside. I didn't say this in the first service, okay? Many of you are in this room, and I hope you just heard what 1 Corinthians 7 said, because you're married to someone who doesn't share your faith. Perhaps your spouse is in here with you. And you're thinking to yourself, okay, as, we were, as I was preparing this, I was visiting with some friends uh, and getting their insight on this. And multiple of them said that they had made the decision to marry someone who didn't share their faith early on. And they are in those marriages and they're obeying 1 Corinthians chapter 7. One of them actually said, I was the unbelieving, I was engaged, I was the unbeliever. And when I read this, I realized the the challenge I was creating for this person I love, I reconsidered the gospel and, and trusted Jesus. So one of the things I want you to know, friends, I, I want you to, to grasp this. If you are in a marriage and you are unequally yoked in this sense, God is not calling you out of that marriage. He is calling you to live in holiness and in purity and in love for your spouse and in service to your spouse so that they might encounter the living Christ through you. They might encounter the living Christ. Now, if you are unmarried, friends, if you are unmarried, let me say God's design for you, his desire for you is that you would marry someone who shares your faith and to not settle for anything other than that. To not settle for anything other than that. And I'm not talking about just, I think when they were three, they prayed a prayer. talking about someone who will lock arms with you and go hard after Jesus together. That's God's desire for you. It's his design for you. Now, that may mean waiting. It may mean being patient. It is worth your patience. All right, so back to the idea of idol worship. Here's the question that remains then is why does Paul feel it necessary to give this command? Why this seemingly odd left turn. Why does he say don't be unequally yoked? The reason is he's writing to the Corinthians and he's just defended his ministry and he's recognizing one of the reasons that they're having trouble um, sort of owning their allegiance to him and following his teaching is because they're still connected to all this idol worship that's taking place in the city of Corinth. 
and they're deeply related to and in relationship with those who are drawing them into idol worship. That's why he's talking about Christ and the devil here, or he's saying what does the temple of God have to do with the temple of idols, right? He's alluding to that idea because it's still very present in the Corinthian world, is that they're still deeply invested in these places, and he's calling them to come out of those places, from those relationships that are drawing them into idolatry. One of the things you and I will have to just embrace and understand is that to become holy, for holiness to advance in us, there will always be a laying down of things, a removal of things from our lives. That is part of becoming holy. Removing things that are impure, removing things that cause our affections to be stirred for the world rather than for Christ. That includes our things that shape our minds, things that shape our heart. That includes our music. It includes our movies. It includes our relationships. It includes everything that hinders the pursuit of Christ-likeness in us. That is God's, God's design for us. Now, Corinthians lived in this time where a, an idol literally was a, a false god put on a pedestal. They had temples, physical buildings that people would enter into. Meat would be sacrificed to these idols. So for you and I, we might think, well, what is, how does that sort of meet me today when I think about the reality of what relationships might there be in my life where I've deeply tied myself to someone who is helping, uh, who is moving me further to the love of the things of the world, towards these idols, right? Because we don't have, no one is saying, eat this meat sacrifice to an idol. We're coming to this temple of this idol and worship with me so that we can continue our business partnership together. And if you don't, then we're gonna have to discontinue your future in our community is at risk, right? That's not necessarily happening, but what might help us is to think about the idols that we do have present among us. Now, when I say idol, I want you to think this way. I'm gonna borrow from Tim Keller here because he's got some helpful insight on this, a great book he wrote called Counterfeit Gods where he talks about the idols that we tend to worship in our day and age. He identifies three that I think are particularly helpful. They cut across cultures, but they express themselves differently in each culture. They are this, power, comfort, and security. And when we talk about idols, we're not just talking about things that we literally bow down and worship. We're talking about things that we look to to give us an identity. Things that we look to to define us and to give us meaning and purpose. And what Keller says, I think it's very wise, he says an idol is never necessarily a a bad thing that we raise up. It's a good thing that we make an ultimate thing. So power, comfort, security, none of those are bad things. They're only, they're only askew when we take these good things and we turn them into ultimate things. Idols are very rarely bad things. We don't take bad things and treasure them. We treasure good things and we turn them into ultimate things, things that we look to for our meaning, our identity. So he says that in our culture, we are often pursuing power. We're often pursuing comfort. We're often pursuing security. And we can use any number of means to pursue those things, those idols, let me tell you from my own opinion, this is not Keller, this is me now. Let me tell you where I see those things most clearly expressed. I think our idolization of power is expressed in our cultural value for autonomy. You know what I mean when I say autonomy? That I am my own person and no one will tell me what to do or what to believe that I am in charge of me. Perhaps you've heard this, you, you do you, Right? When people say that, what they mean is you're in charge of you and no one should be able to tell you what to do or what to think or how to believe or how to live. And my friends, that is so contrary to a Christian worldview. But we value autonomy so deeply and so dearly in our culture. That's our expression of love for power. 
Our love for power is expressed in our desire for all of us to define our, to be sort of our own captain, to tell ourselves where our ship's gonna go. And the second, uh, in, in the realm of comfort, I think it expresses itself, I think this idol of comfort expresses itself in entertainment, as needing to be entertained. Do you guys feel, I feel this all the time, uh, I feel a wash in the need to be entertained at all times. If I don't have a screen in front of me, if I don't have something that's constantly uh, calling my attention to something that is enjoyable, right? I find it very difficult to sit in boredom and silence for any amount of time. Anybody with me? If you find that, if you find that to be true, my friends, let me offer to you that perhaps, perhaps we have made an idol out of being entertained and that's our version of comfort so that we don't have to think about difficult things. We just wash ourselves over. There's a great, uh, a good book that's been written by a guy named Nicholas Carr called The Shallows and the subtitle is What the Internet is Doing to Our Minds. Now, it's not written by a believer, but his argument in the book, his chief thesis is this, is that the Internet is essentially making it very, very difficult for us to sustain linear thought on any, in any particular direction for extended time. That to, that to ponder something, and that our minds, we're training our minds to essentially jump here and then jump there and then go here and then go there. The reality is that information is not at a premium anymore. We can get information anytime, anywhere, anyplace. It is not difficult to collect information, right? Remember back in the day when you wanted to know something, you had to go get the Encyclopedia Britannica out of the garage? Right, some of you, and you're like, you had to look it up, and you'd be like, I don't, it's not even in here, like that thing I wanted to find out, right? Or you needed a phone number, and you had to kerplunk, get out the big yellow pages and flip through, you know? Now what, you just pull up the phone, and it's there, right? So we don't live in a time where information is at a premium, but attention is at a major premium. In fact, people talk about us living in an economy of attention. The most valuable thing that you and I have is not our money, it's not our time, it's our attention, Our attention is the hardest thing to get, therefore it's at the highest premium. It's of the highest value. And advertisers know it, marketers know it, and so everybody's trying to figure out ways to get our attention. The last, I think, is this, is uh, our security idol, I think is expressed in a love of money, and that's a pretty simple one. I think we look to money, we look to building our bank accounts to make ourselves okay, because we know as long as there's money in the bank, no matter what happens, we'll be okay. Now, it's not unwise to steward your money well and to save and to... To be, a, to be good with that, that's not wrong, that's not bad, but the difference becomes when you look to your ultimate safety in having that bank account be well padded versus looking to God and knowing that he will be the one who protects you. So the first thing that we see as we look at this text is that God is saying, come out from the types of ties in your life that cause you to worship idols. And think about power, comfort, and security and the things in your life that tie you to those things. Because in the same way Paul is talking to the Corinthians, God is talking to us and saying to us, you must remove certain things from your life in your process of becoming holy. Second thing is this, and it's really the richest truth of the day, I think, is that Not only do we have to put things away, we have to bring things in. And in fact, what I'll tell you is the things that we're about to read, until you bring them into your life, you don't have any hope of putting anything else out away from your life. Because it's not until these things fill that they push out the things that need to be pushed out. Does that make sense? Does that visual image make sense? So look at what he says needs to come in now. At the end of verse 16, he says, For we are the temple of the living God, 
as God said, and now he's gonna quote three Old Testament passages, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So there's something he's just said that's really powerful and profound. I will be their God, they will be my people, I will make my dwelling among them, and then the result of that is verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Okay, so put those relationship ties away because of the things that you just heard, and then he revisits that, he says, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter seven, verse one. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Do you see what he's just done? What Paul has just done is pull forward these Old Testament promises that were given to Israel and say, these are the promises that will drive forward like an engine drives forward a car. They will drive forward your process of holiness when you believe them. Now, how do you become recipients of these promises? Here's where there's a massively important distinction for us. Because if you notice, as Paul quotes these promises from Leviticus and from Isaiah and from Ezekiel, as he quotes them, They are conditional. Do you know what I mean when I say conditional? If you do this, then you will receive the promise. If you will do these things, Israel, if you will separate yourselves, then I will welcome you. Then I will be a father to you. That's how Israel received those promises. Do these things and then you will receive. But the New Testament ethic is completely different than the Old Testament ethic because no longer do we say, do this, then get this. Now the New Testament comes in and says, you are this, therefore live out of what you are. And so what he's saying is these conditions that needed to be met for these promises to be enacted by God, right? I do this and the contract kicks into effect and God gives those promises. He says, guess who has fulfilled every single one of the conditions needed to be met by, to receive those promises? Guess who's done it? Jesus has done it. He has come in and lived perfectly holy. He has come in and put away all that stains. There is nothing left that remains that is not perfect and pure and lovely and good and right. He is the holiness and righteousness of God. And because he is, because he lived a sinless life and then died on your behalf and my behalf, and then remember 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and gave us his righteousness. Now, that position of holiness that we talked about at the very beginning, it is ours. And because it is ours, we have received the promises of God in the gospel, and therefore we can live out the process of holiness going forward. Do you see that? Your hope, my hope of actually fulfilling and living and increasing holiness is found in believing taking in what God has given us in Christ Jesus. Now, when you look at the promises of God, because there's a couple here, we're gonna touch on them briefly, okay? When you look at the promises of God, if you want to become holy, it begins by understanding that your process begins by knowing your position and coming to that position. It will never work. Friends, it will never work just to say, I am going to bear down and try really hard to be moral. Many of you are trying that. It will not work, I promise. Do you know how I know? I tried. It will not, maybe you're stronger than me. Maybe you can do it for longer than I could do it, but I guarantee you at some point you will fail. 
you do not have what you need to just bear down and be moral, bear down and be good so that God would love you. What you have is an offer to you that you can take his son's holiness. It can be imputed to you, given to you. And then as that position is true of you, now you can live out. This is the New Testament ethic. The Old Testament ethic was do this in order to become that. The New Testament ethic is now do this because you have become that. That's the way the New Testament ethic works. You are a holy person positionally, therefore live as a holy person. Now here are the promises he gives, and there's so many and they're so rich. We could go through all the Bible and talk about the promises of God, but recognize this. When God gives his promises, he's not giving them to us so that we would treasure the promises. He's giving us the promises because those promises reveal his perfect, his perfect nature to us. And we believe that his promises are good and by faith, they then connect us to him, our great treasure. Do you guys follow that? That's different than saying, I just want the stuff that God gives. His promises communicate his very nature to us. So look at the, we'll just take two from this text because look at what he gives us his promises here. Number one, he promises to make his home with us. He promises to make his home with us. Look at what he says, how he says it in verse 16. He says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Now, you and I might, well, okay, Remember what we read about Tozer and the infinite, perfect holiness of God. And that God is saying, I will make my home with you. I will dwell in you. I will live among you. And by the way, he's using the first person plural here, right? Uh, or the second person plural, sorry, with the you. So he's not just talking about me as an individual being the temple of the living God and God residing with me. He's talking about us. And he's saying, I will walk among you, church. I will live among you. You will be my people. I will make my dwelling, not just with you, 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 but with you. When we come together, in a very real sense, we are the dwelling place of God. Not this building, but the church gathered, the dwelling place of God, present with us. Now think, if you've got idols, as I do, of comfort and security and power, and you're thinking, I really, I crave power, God doesn't come in and say, let me, let me, let me give you no power. He comes in and says, the most powerful one in all the universe will now make his home with you. He answers that desire and he places it on him. So there's no longer idolatry. It is now the worship of God and his power and his goodness. The second promise he makes in this text is not just to make his home with us, but to claim us. Look at how he said it. He said, he claims us, I'll be their God, they'll be my people. So that's really good, but he goes further because it's not as if he just says, I'll just make a group of people, I'll just kind of pick them and I'll make them my people and they'll serve me and I'll, I'll, I'll you know, rule over them as their God. That's one type of relationship, and it's a, it's a good type of relationship. But he goes further, down in verse 18. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now, the 
the Old Testament writer intentionally wants you to understand the juxtaposition between those two things because he doesn't say, just says the Lord. He says, I will be a father to you. You'll be sons and daughters to me. And then he says, who says that? The Lord Almighty, because he wants you to understand how odd it is that this one who is so high and exalted and all powerful would actually claim you as sons and daughters. Now, here's what I would argue. Friends, if you've ever experienced being, being unclaimed or not claimed, then you know the power that it is to be claimed. To have, one, to have someone say, oh, they're, they're with me. They belong to me. We have this deep desire inside of us to be claimed by, by those we love. Say, oh, no, no, not, not like I don't know him. I don't know her. But, oh, no, yes, they, they're, my, they're my family. My, I was watching a show this week, two brothers wrestling, duking it out, and, and someone says to him, what's going on, are you guys okay? And he goes, oh, it's okay, it's my brother. Later in the show, the brother goes, that's the first time in all of our lives that you've actually said to me, you, you've called me your brother. What was he expressing there? A deep desire to be claimed, to say, you're, you're mine, I'm yours, we're, we're together, we go together. Another example, total chick flick, but I'm guilty. P.S. I love you, anybody? <laughs> With Hilary Swank. And Kathy Bates, Kathy Bates' character says something I think expresses the same desire, says this. Talking to her daughter who's lost her husband, she says, I bet you've had a hard time walking into a room full of people on your own, right? Said, yeah, I know that. I know what it is to not feel like you're in the room until he looks at you or touches your hand or even makes a joke at your expense just to let everyone know you're with him. You're his. What's the character expressing there? She's expressing the desire that we all have, men and women alike, to be claimed, to have someone say, they're mine. Now listen, friends, listen. If you've spent your whole life unclaimed, if you've spent your whole life rejected, pushed to the fringes, if you've spent your whole life longing for someone to say, I claim them, they are mine, the God of the universe has said through his son, Jesus Christ, he would delight to claim you as his son or daughter. There's no cost. There's no fee. There's nothing you have to do. You don't have to get your act together. You don't have to look really nice. You don't have to be the most attractive one in the room to cause him to say, yes, yes, I want you. You don't have to line up behind a velvet rope and wait to pay your cover. He says, you can belong to me today, now. And my friends, if you want to walk in holiness, my friends who have come to Jesus, if you want to walk in holiness, you have to know these promises. These aren't just nice ideas that you sort of like take in and repeat to yourself so that if you sort of over time begin to believe them, it is good to repeat these truths to yourself, but they are real actualities in the spiritual world and in your life that as you believe them and, and take them in to your heart and to your mind, transform the way you think and the way you live and the decisions you make, which is how they end up causing you to become increasingly holy process of holiness, the process of holiness must always include and actually begins with believing the promises of God and the gospel. And as you believe that, then you begin to live out the process of holiness as it goes forward. That's God's design for us. It's his desire for us that we would be a holy people. Be a holy people. Let's pray. Our Father, we delight in you. We love you. You are holy to a degree and in a way that we confess we do not understand. 
We could spend all day here speaking words about what that means and none of it would really come ultimately up to what it is that you are. And so I pray that you would impart a vision of your holiness to us as your people, that we would be holy, that we would be different than the world, that we would separate ourselves from things that do not please you, and that we would embrace your promises so that we might become holy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are holy. We delight in you and we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.